Okay, so we're going to carry on this morning with our study through the book of Genesis. We've come as far as chapter 8, and we're kind of halfway through those chapters that look at the flood, the flood of Noah. As we said already, it's a a portion of scripture that the world likes to criticize and to to mock. Um, The idea of some man building a boat to many seems ludicrous, and yet there's over 270 flood legends in every culture around the world. This isn't something that's just a a made-up story. You can't have that many different variants of the same thing, all pointing to the same kind of details, and just then write it off as just folklore. There had to be something that triggered all of those legends that we have around the world. And then the big problem the critics have is the biblical account. Because the Bible doesn't present this as something that's just mythology or just a a quaint story. The Bible presents this as something that's true. It's something that Jesus himself refers to as a real event. The writers of the New Testament speak of the flood as an actual historical event. Now the world doesn't like it because of the implication, because the flood speaks of God's judgment on a world that had rejected God. And as Jesus highlights that in the days prior to his return, we're going to live in days just like it was in the days of Noah, when lawlessness and wickedness will abound. And of course the implication, the clear implication is that judgment is coming upon this world in just the same way as God judged the world at the time and leading up to the flood. So the world can laugh, the world can mock. The reality is the evidence is on the side of the scripture account. You know, you go out in the world, you look around, and we've talked about this in, in, in previous weeks. You know, there is overwhelming evidence that there was once a worldwide flood. In, in so many ways, in so many places. You know, the suggestion that all the things we see happened gradually over millions of years is utter nonsense. That idea only ever came in as a theory to counter the biblical position. It didn't come in because of evidence. It came in because of a hatred for the Bible. And then people try to muster together supposed evidence. Sadly, academia took hold of it, and it's become the, the principal thing that we read about in college and school textbooks and so on. And it's now spoken of as fact. It's nothing of the sort. And the idea of this uniformitarianism, the idea that everything has stayed the same, with just gradual changes... I mean, you just have to look around the world and see that that's not the case. So, as we go into these chapters, we're moving into this post-flood world. Everything has been changed. And the world that Noah stepped off the ark into is the world in which we now live. And we need to understand that it was a very different world than the pre-flood world. You know, a number of big changes have occurred. Yet there's now a new hydro system. You know, we actually read in Ecclesiastes how Solomon there speaks of the hydro system, the way that the rivers all flow into the sea. And then through that process of evaporation, the rain then lands on the hills and the mountains again. It fills up the rivers and goes, they go back into the sea and this process just continues. I'm not sure, I can't remember the exact number, but billions of gallons of rain fall every day. That's the world in which we now live. Before the flood, there was no rain. Hebrews highlights that for us. And also we're told in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, that there was just a mist that went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. It's very clear that it's, it's a global thing. 
But that is totally different, a big, big change. And, you know, and again, we've said before that, that the faith that Noah had to build an ark because of this thing called rain that no one had seen at that point, and building a boat up on top of a high mountain, that was faith. So that's one of the, the big changes that we see. But the earth seemingly at this point had undergone this big axis shift as well. You know, I'm sure you're familiar that the world now is spinning. The earth is spinning at this 23 and a half degree rotate, uh, this angle. And that's what gives us our seasons. Seemingly before the flood, that wasn't the case. And this goes along with what we were talking about last week. And the notes from last Sunday, the slides, I've updated them from, from the morning. I've added a few more comments. If you go online, you'll see there. But there's some really credible scientific research that's been done. And one of them, uh, Australian astronomer mentioned this last week, George Dodwell, in, in a study he'd done looking at solstice shadows that ancient cultures had recorded, lots of these records, Stonehenge being one of them, interestingly. It appeared to him that something struck the earth, in his own words, something struck the earth about 4,350 years ago. And that caused the shift that we have now. Well, that fits perfectly in the biblical time frame of when the flood occurred. That something struck the earth, and we said last week there may well have been this ice meteor that hit the earth at that point. It's the only way to account for so many things, including the, the freezing of mammoths and so on. By the way, mammoths, they, they have fur on their legs. And, and that fur would just get all clogged up if they're walking through icy environments. They weren't icy creatures. They didn't live in cold environments. They lived in a tropical environment. But we've got mammoths and rhinoceroses and all sorts of other large creatures, frozen solid, with vegetation still in their mouths. And the only way you can freeze something that size that quickly is if the temperature plummets dramatically. The idea is somewhere around about 400 degrees below zero is the kind of temperature you need. So something totally catastrophic occurred at the time of the flood. But again, it seems that all these things seem to fit together so, so perfectly. The other thing that occurred, of course, is that the universal climate had gone. Up until the flood, seemingly there was just one climate around the earth. And we know that even at the South Pole, there's forests that have been found, um, fossilized and buried in the ice. Admiral Byrd discovered those some years ago. Um, but many, many other things. I mean, coal, again, at the, the um, North and South Pole, which is evidence that once there was organic living material there, you know, nothing like it is today. Uh, and uh, the fossil remains of creatures in all these locations... The world was once very, very different than it is now. You know, as I said already, the world that no one now steps into was now going to be subject to seasons. You know, and that's what we're used to, but that wasn't the way it was before the flood. The other big impact, of course, the oxygen level had now dropped dramatically with the, the crashing down of this water canopy that had surrounded the earth, this firmament that is spoken of back in the early opening chapters of Genesis. That, that, that water canopy seemingly has come down at the time of the flood. And one of the results of that was that the oxygen level reduced. Now, there was a study done by um, the University of London. It was on their website some years ago. There was also an article in Time magazine um, back in 87, all saying that the Earth once had double the oxygen content that it does today. And that has a lot of implications. You would live longer. Your body would heal quicker in the event of any injury. Animals and plants and creatures would all grow physically larger. 
Well, this all fits perfectly with what we know from Scripture and, of course, what we have in the fossil record and so on. You know, the world makes a big thing and tries to somehow shoehorn these things into the theory of evolution. It just doesn't work. But, I mean, even the dinosaurs themselves, some of the dinosaurs, the the Apatosaurus being one of them, have very, very small nostrils, about the size of your average horse today. And it's still a mystery to scientists how it managed to breathe based upon the climate that we, we are familiar with now. The only way that creature could have breathed and lived is if the oxygen content was higher previously, which fits perfectly. And it also gives another credible reason as to why many of the dinosaurs would have died and become extinct after the flood. A lot of their foodstuffs may not have been there for them, and if the oxygen level is different, another good reason. Now, another thing that happens as a result of all this is that lifespans start to dramatically reduce after the flood. Now, this is exactly what the Bible shows us. It's also what's seen uh, in other historical documents, the King's List, the Sumerian King's List. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Bill Cooper highlights that in uh, his study, his book, The Authenticity of Genesis. You know, there's lots of credible evidence to support all the things the Bible says. You know, the issue is never about the information or the evidence is about the heart. And if people do not want to believe God's word, they'll find all sorts of reasons why not to believe it. But never turn around and say it's not because of evidence. There's overwhelming evidence. The issue is simply, do people want to harden their heart and reject what God has said? And you see, all of this, again, just comes back to that issue that God judged the world because of sin. And God has promised to do the same again. Now, we mentioned in the opening chapter of Genesis, we have this Erev and Boka. The way it's translated is evening and morning, but in the Hebrew, Erev and Boka, each day, apart from on day seven. Now, does that mean on day seven there wasn't an evening and a morning? No. It seems to imply an increase of entropy, information that God was adding. Each of the seven days or six days of creation... But the seventh day, God has rested. God completed his work. There is no new information. That stays the same up until the time of the fall, Genesis 3. And suddenly, something dramatic happens in our universe. And a whole load of laws, scientific laws, seem to get introduced. Things like the second law of thermodynamics, which states that everything is now running down and winding down. That seems to be a direct result of the fall. We now come up, as you can see there on the screen, to the time of the flood. And again, the world has been rearranged. A lot of things have now changed. We're a long way away from God's perfect, wonderful creation. The Genesis 1.27, God declares, was very good. We've a long way away from that. And yet, as Jeff was praying a moment ago, you know, we look around this world, we look at the beauty that we see in nature. You know, we get a sunny day and you look at the plants and it's been lovely driving around the last few weeks seeing daffodils everywhere and, you know, the tulips are starting to come out and yesterday we went to to a place and it was just this little lovely meadow of bluebells and it's just beautiful, God's creation. And we could spend ages just talking about the design in flowers, the arrangement of petals. So many of them are grouped in sevens. We've got a little bird box on the back of our house which we decided we were going to take down until we realized there was a nest in there with some eggs, so I've now put it back up. I don't want to get in trouble with, with the, the birdies that were looking after those eggs. But you know that most creatures have gestation periods in multiples of sevens. Most birds do. I mean, all these sevens throughout nature and throughout the Bible we find sevens as God's measure or mark of complete. Incredible. God's design everywhere. Even in a fallen world like we, we live in now, 
Romans chapter 8, verse 19 onwards. It says, for the earnest expectation of the, the creature of creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. This verse Paul's saying that the world around us, the creatures, the, the, the creation, is looking forward to the time when the sons of God will be revealed. That's speaking of you and I being revealed for who we truly are, not these feeble frames that we currently reside in, but our new habitation, those new bodies that are promised us for eternity. We're talking in verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, by reason of him, speaking of God, who has subjected the same in hope. See, God has allowed all of these things because it's looking forward to that which is to come. He says, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know, if the world is incredible now, how much more amazing will it be when God puts things back? Acts 3.21, it speaks of the restoration, restitution of all things. Verse 22 says, for we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. That idea Speaking like a woman in labor, more familiar to some at the moment than others. But that idea we see throughout scripture, speaking of getting ready for what God is going to do. And those labor pains are increasing. And creation itself is getting excited, getting ready for all that God is going to accomplish. Now, there's also a number of changes and they're very significant because we're going to find, when we get into chapter 9, just a moment, Lord willing. The, verse 3 there, we find that man is no longer to be only vegetarian. Man is given permission to eat meat. Now, this isn't just a casual thing. There are no meaningless details in the Bible. This wasn't that, that man had been kind of out there lazing one day and there's a pig laying down and as the sun keeps the pig up, he's going, you smell good. It wasn't that Adam had gone, or, or any of the descendants of Adam, or Noah, or anybody had gone to God and said, oh, please, can we eat meat? But God makes this decision. But there's a reason for it. And it has to do with the shedding of blood. We also find in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, that now capital punishment is introduced. That if a man's life is taken, if a man's blood is shed then the person that kills him will also forfeit his own life. Now that also has a big implication because ultimately Satan will be one who will be responsible for taking Jesus' life. Satan engineered and tried to make all those things happen by putting in Judas's heart, that desire, and then working, manipulating the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders and so on. And inadvertently Satan puts himself in a position where he has an innocent man put to death. Even Caiaphas, the high priest, makes that statement. There's better what one man die for the whole nation and so on. And then Judas also declares that Jesus was innocent. It's a very interesting thing starting to come in. And then Shem's descendants now will be chosen through whom God will bring the seed into the world, this promised Messiah. Now all of these, in their own way, are all to do with blood. We'll talk a little more as we go through. Let's go through, picking up in Genesis 8, verse 1 to start with. And God remembered Noah. Of course, God never forgets anyway. But Noah had been on the ark for some time. And we know that God had spoken to Noah prior to him going onto the ark. 
But we're told that God remembered Noah. I'm sure that that was a comfort for Noah as God now speaks to Noah again and we start to see these things unfold. But we're told that every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuage. I was just to one study yesterday and um, some scientists have got this opinion again those that hold to the the authenticity and the integrity of scripture that there may well have not been wind like we know it prior to the flood the earth would have been very very different but now this wind starts to blow this wind passes over the earth and it's very similar to what we read in the opening verses of genesis 1 where the holy spirit brooded over the face of the waters God makes this wind. And the interesting thing here, that this wind, the word that's used there, is the same Hebrew word, ruach, as we have for spirit. It's just interesting, God moving again in this new world as it is. See, God's plan was going just fine. God never intended for man to sin. God didn't want that to happen, but God knew because he knows the end from the beginning that it would. And God had planned every step of the way. And all of these things were necessary parts to bring about that which was essential, i.e. the Saviour coming into this world. Verse 2 says, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. I'm, I'm sure Noah and the family inside the ark were really relieved when they heard it stop raining. You know, having gone that period of time and no rain, and suddenly rain descending, the wall being flooded, there must have been that, well, is this now going to be how it is? But when that rain stops, that hope, that reality that God is doing something here. And the ark, we're told, rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Touchdown! The ark lands on terra firma. And this must have been a really exciting moment because now they are back on land. But this is really, really interesting. Again, we've made the point before that there are no meaningless details in the Bible. Every detail is there by deliberate supernatural design. And notes the date here that this new life begins on earth as it touches down on earth and effectively life again starts on this earth. The 17th day of the month, we're told. And it's the seventh month that this occurs. Now, this is really interesting because when we go to the book of Exodus, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, God changes the calendar for the Jews. The Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be to the beginning of months. Now, they were halfway through the year at that point. And God says, right, press reset. This is now going to change your calendar. It'd be like... God's saying, right, now January's not going to be your first month. July is going to be the first month of the year. And this is what God does. So when we look at the calendar that the Jews had, you can see the old calendar there down there on the, the left, you know, the equivalent months in English on the, uh, the right-hand side. But then the whole calendar shifts around. Now where we are is that point there, the month of Nisan, or Aviv sometimes referred to in the Hebrew. It was the old seventh month. But now it becomes the first month in Egypt. And it's of course the first month when they're in Egypt that the Lord says that they're to celebrate this Passover festival. Now the ark comes to rest, if you remember, on the 17th day of the 7th month. 
Now, why this is so interesting is when we go to Passion Week, as we refer to it, that week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection, just as occurred in Egypt, they were told to take a lamb on the 10th day. And by the way, that 10th day was the exact day that had been prophesied by Gabriel and given to Daniel over 500 years beforehand, the exact day that Jesus would present himself as the king to Israel. And that's the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's the exact day, 173,880 days, the exact time period that is given by Gabriel in this incredible prophecy recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Well, they were told the the Jews for their Passover to take a lamb on the 10th day. Well, they did take Jesus on the 10th day. And they were told to keep that lamb until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole congregation of the assembly were to kill this lamb between the evenings. Not in the evening, but between. That's the word that we're given, the word bayan in the Hebrew in Exodus chapter 12. And they're they're given this 24-hour window. Bear in mind that the Hebrew day begins in the evening. When it gets to the evening, the new day begins, because when God created we have the evening and the morning. So it starts in the evening. The Jews always follow that pattern. So Jesus, on the 14th in the evening, celebrates the Passover with his disciples, and yet on the 14th also is able to die on the cross as our Passover. Taken on the 10th day, kept until the 14th day. 15th was a high Sabbath. It was a, a special day. It was a feast of unleavened bread where no work was permitted whatsoever. And then the 16th was their regular Saturday Sabbath. So we had two Sabbaths, no work permitted. And you remember that the women, the first opportunity they get, they go to the tomb because they want to anoint the body of Jesus. That's on the Sunday morning. And we know that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. The feast of first fruits it was for the Jews. And notice what the date is. The 17th day of the first month, which was the 17th day of the seventh month according to the old calendar. See, Jesus rises from the dead on the anniversary in advance of new life beginning on earth. And as Jesus rises from the dead, new life again is made possible for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those who were on the ark were those who put their trust in God. Those who benefit from this new life because of the resurrection will do so by putting their faith and trust in God. What an incredible piece of design that God has worked into scripture there. Now notice also in verse 4, we're told that the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, a lot of people think about the Mount Mount Ararat, which is in uh, the um, east side of Turkey today. It's just looking in uh, from Google Earth, we zoom in a little bit on that area. The whole range there in the center of the mountains of Ararat. They go across um, the top of uh, Iraq into Iran, Afghanistan, and so on. This mountain range. Now again, looking there where that circle is right in the middle, that's roughly where Mount Ararat was. Now, I was looking yesterday to try and find corroboration for this, but there's numerous sources that have suggested that Helena, the mother of Constantine, who was the one that named Sinai Mount Sinai, is also the one that named Ararat Mount Ararat. It's just it's very interesting. She, she'd gone around looking for these holy sites and trying to name, and this was about 300 AD. And she'd gone down to the Sinai Peninsula and found a mountain there, it's like, well, it's a mountain, what else can it be? So it gets called Sinai. It's not the Mount Sinai that the Bible speaks of. Paul tells us that Mount Sinai is actually in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula, which is what's commonly now assumed. That this mountain also doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily the Mount Ararat. It just happens to be called Mount Ararat because somebody named it that. But prior 
to this, there's a whole range of mountains. And we're told that the ark came to rest in this, in the mountains of Ararat, which spread across that whole top piece there. Now, that's Mount Ararat itself. Looking there, typically it's about a 14,000 feet elevation. Uh, there's been all sorts of suggested sightings of the ark in this place. Um, and if you look at some of those more recent ones, there's been all sorts of documentaries. There's a CBS special and there was a film made some years ago uh, called Finders of the Lost Ark. And it was very interesting. They were talking about some airplanes, some Russian airplane aviators back in 1916 that had gone over this area and they apparently seen what seemed to be a boat sticking out the side of this mountain, Mount Ararat, uh, and so on. They, they claimed that it must be the Ark. And other people have said they found the Ark and all sorts of things, all based upon Mount Ararat. But it's interesting because Mount Ararat didn't get its title until around about 300 AD. Before that time, we have a number of supposed sightings and recordings of this place. Uh, Barosaurus, a Chaldean high priest back in 275 BC, had recorded that people were, had found the ark in this mountain range somewhere and were going and taking pieces of the ark away. Josephus also, before Mount Ararat had been named Mount Ararat, speaks of people going and taking parts of the ark and making them into um, trinkets and, and so on. Interesting. It doesn't mean anything or prove anything, but what we do know from Scripture is if we look at this region, we're told that when they come off the ark, they travel from the east. Now, the problem we have with that Mount Ararat, you see at the top there, because they they come from the east and they settle in the the plains of Shinar, which is where Babylon is today. You see, that's north, that's not from the east, whereas they travel from the east, so it makes more sense that the ark is likely to be in this mountain range, again, somewhere north of Afghanistan. And as they come off the mountains, they travel from the east, and they come to this nice flat plain, not far from, from Baghdad, and so on, the area of Babylon, still there today. So we read verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month, and in the tenth month and the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, from off the earth. And also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. So this raven's going backwards and forwards and eventually doesn't come back. This dove is interesting because it says that the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot and she returned unto him in the ark. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and poured her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days. And again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came to him in the evening and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that waters were abated from off the earth. It's interesting how this idea of a dove with an olive branch in its mouth is seen as a symbol of peace. I mean, for Noah it was a good thing, because clearly things were growing now on, on the earth. But he, he just didn't want the dove to come back at all. That's what he was looking for. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth a dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass in the sixth hundred and first year... In the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Just imagine the excitement, the joy. And yet, probably a sense of anticipation. By the way, that date is also significant. Because the first day 
of the seventh month, which correlates to this, will be the Feast of Trumpets. What a day of celebration as they step off the ark on this day. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. So, just to give you the, the details of this, if you want to look at the chronology of how it all fits together, Noah and the family go onto the ark. They're on there for seven days. God closes the door and then the, the flood begins. The waters prevail for 150 days and then the ark rests on ground, as we've seen already, on the 17th day of the seventh month. And then after 74 days, the tops of the mountains are seen. Another 40 days, the raven sent. And then the doves first, second, and then final trip in seven-day intervals going out. And then finally Noah removes the covering and they leave the ark in the second month, the 27th day of the month. So the total time on the ark is 377 days. So if you just kind of look at those groups of time, seven days plus 150 days plus 163 days plus that final 57, giving us our 377 days. Just over a year they spend on board this ark. Now probably a lot of the animals were, were hibernating through that period. I'm sure God had engineered that. But what an exciting moment that they come to this place now of leaving the ark. And God spoke unto Noah saying, Go forth of the ark thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. And interestingly, Noah waits about two months before actually leaving the ark. He waits until God says so. I don't want to make too much of this, but it is so important that we wait for God's timing in things. You know, Abraham had been promised a son, but didn't wait for God's timing. He decides to help God out and you know what happens, the situation with Ishmael. Israel wanted a king, God had promised one. But the nation got impatient. They didn't wait for God's timing. They ended up with Saul and all the problems that came along with that. Saul, as an individual, couldn't wait for Samuel to arrive to offer a sacrifice before one of the battles. And so decides he's going to do this himself. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't authorized to offer up a blood sacrifice. He ends up losing the kingdom as a result. You know, in regard to Jesus sitting on the throne of David, John the Baptist... Jesus' disciples and the Jews all expected Jesus to establish the throne of David there and then. So much so that Peter even gets a sword and chops off the high priest's ear. It's not until after the resurrection the disciples are kind of piecing it together and they go, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom? Jesus says, effectively, no, not yet. It's God's timing. You see, we have to wait for God's timing. And sometimes that's really hard because we're an impatient bunch, aren't we? But God is never in a hurry. God has eternity. I know we're in time, but God never turns up too late. We just need to learn to trust God. Lean not on our own understanding. Isn't that what Solomon tells us in Proverbs? And God spoke unto Noah, saying, Go forth off the ark of thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, and bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So they're just trying to get all the animals off the ark and, you know, okay, we've got one shrew. Where's the other one gone? Can somebody find, you know, they're just hunting around the ark trying to find these little creatures and, you know, okay, we've got a millipede. Anybody find the other one? It's a woodworm. They'd have been tricky to find on the ark. But God engineers, they get all of these creatures off so that life can re commence on earth. And verse 18, and Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl whatsoever creeps upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah building an altar unto the Lord. It's such an important thing. It's just kind of it's in the text. It's easy to read over. But Noah built an altar to the Lord. 
Now, we're not, we don't see here that he's commanded to do this. God had already implied that this was going to be something that was going to happen, but Noah seems to take the initiative. Noah wanting to start things properly. How important we do that in our own families, in our own lives. And took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And by the way, this is why they had to have sevens of those clean animals, not just two and two. Because it would be a real shame, wouldn't it, if you get off the ark and we've just preserved these creatures for this year and a bit, and now we kill them. No, no, God had engineered this, that these animals were to be offered up as an offering to God. Again, the shedding of blood atones for sin. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, there's our seasons, and day and night shall not cease. So God now making a promise here. 2 Peter tells us, 2 Peter 3, 5 and 7, for this... They, speaking of the people in the world, the scoffers and those on, it says, are, are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. Not by the word of Darwin, not by man's ingenuity or by random processes. No, it was by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth, standing out of water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. I mean, Peter makes it really clear that the world was covered by a flood and the world as it was perished. But then he says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly man. Peter says God's going to do the same thing again. That It's not going to be water next time. It's going to be fire. It's going to be judgment that God is going to bring upon the earth on account of man's sin. And there is so much in the Bible that speaks of this time of judgment that's coming. And it is just around the corner. We read, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as the green herb I have given you all things. So God now says the man can eat meat, as we said earlier. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be a vegetarian. But God here states it. Now, why does God state this? Well, I think if you take time and do a study on this, you'll discover that it has a lot to do with shedding of blood. Because when you get to Leviticus, when animals are killed, the specific instruction is given and their blood has to be poured out into the ground. It's very interesting that a lot of the New Age cults and so on, one of the the characteristics they have is vegetarianism. They move away from the shedding of blood. And there, there is definitely, without any question, if you look into this, a correlation between certain demonic things and vegetarianism. Now, I'm not saying that vegetarianism itself is demonic. And if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. But examine your motives. Just consider why. And make sure that that it's not just a rebellion thing. Because for a lot of people, that's what it ends up being. Now, you're free to eat what you want. God makes that perfectly clear. So don't feel condemned in any way. You're free to eat what you want. But be aware that there is something that is going on behind a lot of these 
these things we hear, and particularly in regard to the, the idea of not shedding of blood. It's all part of God's plan and all part of the earth in its fallen state. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, thou shalt not eat. This is a very clear instruction. We are not to eat blood. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood is so important. That's God's decision, not ours, but that's the way it is. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, in the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. And in verse 6 tells us, that whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So God now institutes capital punishment. If you kill somebody, you forfeit your own life. There's a number of other prohibitions about blood in Deuteronomy. In Acts 15, it was one of the things that was given specifically that the church should obey and follow. So things like even black pudding. It's off limits for Christians because it's blood. It's not about whether you like it or not like it. It's that God says don't because we're not to eat blood. Verse 7. It says, And you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Well, that's happened. Yet we now have about 7.5 billion people on the earth. It's going up exponentially. But interestingly, it took from the time of Noah to 1804 to reach 1 billion people. This on its own just makes a mockery of all those people that are trying to tell you that the earth is millions of years old, and the man's been billions of years old, and the earth's been on, man's been on the earth for millions of years, 10 million years or whatever they say. Because in just four and a half thousand years, we've gone from a family of eight or so to seven and a half billion. So really, are we supposed to believe that for millions of years, nothing happened? No, it doesn't make any sense. This makes sense. This is what we see. This is what is going on in the world today. And, you know, we, we do have this problem that the earth, if it carries on with a population increasing like it is, there are going to be issues. Now, of course, it's not going to get to that stage because the Lord's going to come back before this gets to the problem. For people in the world, there are a lot of people really worried about this. Lots of websites that they really talk about how are we going to stop population increase. They talk about, you know, getting rid of people. Well, you first. <laughs> Verse 8. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. Now, this is a promise that God's making. And with every living creature that is uh, with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, for all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. So God makes it very clear. He's not going to send a flood again. Now, it's just a little minor thing, but this is another verse that proves to us that the flood was a global flood. Because there have been floods in various places in the world, but never a global flood. God has kept his word. God has kept his promise. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. He says, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, look, we've got an issue, haven't we, in the days that we live in? Because we're talking, of course, of the rainbow here. But the rainbow, you may have noticed, has been hijacked. Or has it? You see, look at what this verse actually tells us. 
God says, and it shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud over the earth, what happens when God brings a cloud over the earth? We're going to see rainbows. Right, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1, very quickly. I'm just going to ask you, Leah, just to go and give the, uh, the Sunday school children just a five-minute warning. For the adults, don't get comfortable. That doesn't necessarily mean you've got just five minutes, but no, we're trying, we're trying to wrap up in five minutes. But Romans chapter 1, this is really interesting. I'm just going to pick up from verse 18 of chapter 1 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Okay? So what we've seen, let me just summarize this, because we've seen just an outbreak of this, where man has started worshipping the creature and not the creator. Now Hutton, Lyle, Charles Darwin, and many others were a big, big part of that. No, God didn't create you with a product of time and chance and evolution. And so we end up Supposedly worshipping our animal ancestors and so on. We change the, the image of God, verse 23 again, of an uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, into birds, the four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now notice what verse 24 says. Wherefore, let me paraphrase that, because of this, God also gave them up to uncleanness. In other words, God brought judgment upon them because of their rejection of him as creator. Okay? Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, the dishonor of their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Notice for, again, for this cause God gave them up. God allows this to happen. Unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. For even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. And it goes on. Okay, so God has allowed the world to get into the mess it's in because of their rejection of him. Now let's go back to this verse up here. It shall come to pass that when I bring a cloud, you're going to see rainbows. You see, God has allowed a cloud to come upon the earth because of man's rejection of him as creator. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen as many rainbows as in the days in which we live. I'm not talking about the rainbows just in the sky. I'm talking about everywhere. Every group that wants to promote immorality or anything that's anti-God seems to use a rainbow. And God says that he will allow those things to come upon the earth. And here he says that when he brings a cloud over the earth, 
we're going to see rainbows. I think it's really interesting. And notice that this is a sign of coming judgment. Because God says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more be a flood to destroy all flesh. God says, I'm not going to do it with a flood. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So God is not going to send a flood. But as Peter highlights, God is going to bring judgment. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Interestingly, that word that's used there, the token of the covenant, is this bow, toxin in, in the Greek in the New Testament. And in Revelation 6 verse 2, we have there an individual who steps onto the world's, sign, world's stage with a bow, with a token of a covenant. Seemingly a covenant with Israel and the surrounding nations. Just around the corner, I believe. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the sons, the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. We're all related to them. We'll talk about this a bit more next week. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. He gets drunk. He ends up laying in his tent naked. Just a quick verse from Proverbs, because we're told there that it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. You know, the Bible never speaks about drink in a positive way. By the way, we are kings and priests. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 tells us that. And we're told, and Ham, the father of Canaan, interestingly, the, this is, we have this, this relationship, we'll talk about more of this in a moment, but Ham, the father of Canaan here, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Seemingly gloating for whatever reason, and there's a very interesting, maybe we could talk about this some other time, I don't want to get into the depths of this now. But we're told that Shem and Japheth then take a garment, and they lay it upon their shoulders, they're going backward, and they cover the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward they saw not their father's nakedness. And we're told that Noah awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done unto him. Just as an aside, it's interesting, some of the commentaries suggest this is, where it says younger son, that it could be talking about grandson. There's an implication here that Canaan was also involved with his father Ham. Interesting, I'll just leave that there as a possibility. But because he says, and cursed be Canaan, he doesn't curse Ham, he curses Canaan. Now, maybe this is a, also a, a retribution to Ham, saying that his, for Noah, Noah's son Ham had dishonored him, and implying that Canaan, Ham's son, will dishonor him, which we'll look at in subsequent weeks. But he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Interesting. We'll look at this in detail next week, because this has been fulfilled prophetically. The descendants of these various groups, we'll look at where they all go. Canaan shall be his servant. I'm just looking at the, the sons of Ham, and we'll talk about this in detail next week. But Canaan is the one from whom come all those tribes from which we end up with giant problems again. Again, we'll talk about that more in subsequent weeks. This is why Israel were told to get rid of the Canaanites. There was a real threat to humanity because of them. But interesting, this curse 
is put upon Canaan by Noah. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So that brings us to the end of Noah's life. Now next week we're going to carry on. We're going to look into the table of nations. If you've not already got a copy of it, I encourage you to get a copy of Bill Cooper's book, After the Flood, because it's fascinating. And we'll talk about some of the things that Bill highlights. And we'll see how that's a dress rehearsal, because Nimrod comes onto the scene. He's the first world dictator. We'll see a one-world government and a one-world religion, just like we're heading into now. Very, very applicable for the days in which we live. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, just speak to us things that, Lord, help us to walk closer with you. Father, we don't want to just accumulate information. Lord, challenge and change our thinking that you are first in everything, in our lives, in our hearts, our minds. We just thank you for this time this morning. We just pray your blessing on us as we go from here today. Lord, just keep us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In his name we ask these things. Amen.